Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Shurek. This week, I'm joined by David Banks, who is the author of The City Authentic, How the Attention Economy Builds Urban America. Thank you, David, so much for coming out. And would you like to give a little brief introduction to who you are and how this book came to be? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. Uh, uh, So in addition to being a a newly minted book author, I am uh, a lecturer in the geography and planning department at the University at Albany, SUNY. That is the actual name of the university. <laughs> it trips people up. The weird uh, uh, at instead of or something. But um, and, uh, there I'm also the director of globalization studies. And then I'm really active in my union as the, uh, the officer for contingent faculty. I'm a non-tenure track academic and I represent them in my um, uh, on my campus in labor management meetings and stuff like that very gratifying work. I am also a delegate to the area labor council um, for that union. And, uh, and, you know, just general man about town. <laughs> no, that sounds, that's yeah. really fascinating. And it's the, it's the summer of labor. So I'm sure you've been just seeing everything happening all around the country and so much happening. I know uh, U of M is getting ready to go on strike soon and uh, solidarity with those academics and uh, it's just um, things continue to get worse and hopefully better in some way so I'm really glad of the work that you're doing it's super important yeah thank you yeah it's um it, it, it's really hard to organize academics you know and my, my union is also a lot of professionals and actually a lot of nurses because the SUNY system has several teaching hospitals but it's it's tough I think ideologically because academics are socialized to see themselves as like these priests in a secular religion. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and so trying to get them to think of themselves as workers that should have delineated very specific job duties and stuff like that is difficult because it's also like this way of life and an identity. And that's, uh, it's hard to write an identity into a contract. And so it's, it's, it's difficult to get people to jump on on that or or to say you know like oh yeah you know like if you're overworked stop working like stop <laughs> doing all those extra things just stop it and uh and and that doesn't go well it does go over well with a lot of a lot of uh, academics who are like yeah but what about this uh, like i know i know it's not yeah i, I, I would do it i would want to do that too you know like oh, the conferences ah and like yeah but you know like there's only one way that we're gonna like be able to control how much money we make by how much work we do. And that's by controlling how much work we do. (laughs) Every every university campus uh, in this country would fall apart if everyone did only what their job title told, you know, said that they should do. They might not Uh, fall apart if we had, you know, like 10% less administrative roles though. Yes, that is, (laughs) I I would, I I can't disagree there. So you reached out to me, oh, six months ago or or so to uh, get me a copy of your book, The City Authentic, How the Attention and Economy Builds Urban America. And I think before we get started in with like the book, which I mean, it's part of the book, but I'd love for you to just kind of define the city authentic. I know it kind of has to do with the different phases of how we conceptualize cities. And so we can kind of get into that. But I think it'd be great to just kind of set some, you know, definitions out so we can get the conversation going. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a uh, it'll be good to have a nice long conversation about this because I've 
recently done several like three minute oh no <laughs> and so i am you know, doing these like elevator pitches for it but so this will, this will give me some breathing room so the city authentic is the the phrase or, or the term that i give to uh a uh the latest wave of um movement or like movements of uh, social movements of a uh, of a uh, of city building right and it's not a social movement in the way that we would think of as like from the bottom up kind of change movement it's a it's a very these are all very top-down movements that are usually usually come out of a professional re the professional realm or from the people writing the checks right so in probably in like your ap american history class if you took that or uh you know just maybe even just regular history you you get this um term the city beautiful movement and this mm -hmm. is a a term that's used to describe the moment unlike you know either side of the turn of the 20th century where cities get really really big and uh, rich people try to make them beautiful right and there's several material factors for this right so i'm a marxist so I, i'm looking at why like where's the money <laughs> and uh and the the and the reason is because you know in, in the united states we the the frontier had closed and so we had stopped spending so much money on slaughtering native people and we're now trying to find new places to put that money right and, well, uh, and isn't e it kind of like grown with like the growth of i think early 20th century the barons and their like movement towards philanthropy it's just yeah. like designing beautiful locations and designing kind of some you know public areas but a lot of private areas like for the use of a city in order to like bolster it aesthetically in some sense yes yeah. yeah and also if you go back to like justin rosniak's um uh you know uh youtube old youtube channels about um like franklin where he's like building uh a city in real time uh, in cityscapes and he, he he has this really good point where he's talking about building a hospital and like mm -hmm. these big grand philanthropic hospitals aren't what you think they are. They aren't like a, pla a place where out of the goodness of the hearts of the rich, they are healing the poor and destitute. These are places where you warehouse the sick so they don't make you sick, mm -hmm. right? No one's trying to be healed in these hospitals. You just like sequester them in these buildings so that to kind of stop the the spread of diphtheria or or, or tuberculosis or something i've been reading um, a lot about mental asylums recently and it's, yeah it's been fully ingrained in me that like i think people think of these asylums as like oh you just put the sick people there and then you know maybe eventually they get out and it's like no you put the sick people there in order to like intentionally keep them away from everyone else it's not it's not even for a measurement of like wellness or betterment or treating them it's like no it's just about kind of removing people from society yeah, it's very much a, like pretty literally a warehousing <laughs> yeah. of, of, of people that you don't that is somehow like don't don't fit societal standards or your or your or the family doesn't want them or, <laughs> right. or, or something sad like that. Or she uh, or, or a woman just talked a little bit too much in the house. Yeah, right. Yeah. Her, her, uter, her uterus kept wandering. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. No matter how many times you electrocute her brain, it, it won't go away. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's terrible stuff like that. That's actually kind of what's what's behind the city beautiful movement, right? Is are these rich people who want to build these massive structures in the, the in in the United States context? It's to compete with Europe, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's to show specifically that, in places like London and Paris. I mean, those yes, were like yeah, the, the yeah. shining glory of what this movement was about. Yeah, even like Daniel Burnham, who's like sort of synonymous with 
the city beautiful movement you know he's like the architect for this um he has everyone that works with him go tour paris Mm-hmm. And like the in like the the and London, I I I believe you know a lot of the the great cities of Europe to come back and help fully flesh out the design of Washington D.C. Right, and you'd think like, well, you know, our, no, isn't America supposed to be like defining itself against the old <laughs> European powers? Is no, it's actually trying to extend that quote unquote Western uh, frontier or, or or tradition in opposition to native people and and people to the south to some degree at this time, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that's really the, the real opposition there. But the the City Beautiful movement kind of ends uh, in Hitler's Berlin because he, in many ways, <laughs> um, you know, takes things to w- wild extremes, right? And uh, one of the, the least bad things that he took to wild extremes was architecture, uh, where, you know, he wanted to build these like massive dome structures. And pretty much a- after those plans leaked, it's like, okay, he kind of ruined it. <laughs> it was like no one, no like, one really can't wants do to this be, anymore. Yeah, like no one wants to be seen as like a guy that's trying to do something like that. You know, in the same way that no one's named Adolf after you know, like after that, like also no one really wants to um have be seen as like these like great men of history moving and shaping cities under their own image, like that this becomes too taboo now. Like he wanted so, to design structures to make like the Mall of America seem like a little outlet mall. Like it was just oh, yeah, yeah, extravagant yeah. and just the most. Uh, I mean, just obviously, I think just uh completely impossible uh, most of the yeah. time. And, and what I've read about him is like structurally, just you know, things that we're not even we're not capable of. And yeah, I can see why yeah. the movement fell apart there. Yeah, and, and, the, and the Soviets wanted this to some degree as well. They had they had like these ideas for like you know like the the palace of the Soviets being like these enormous uh, places to like where one person could talk to thousands of people before amplified sound like they're trying to do all all, all these sorts of things and it's sort of in the air. But um, I should also say then that you know the 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 technology that was used to make these really big beautiful cities are also where the money comes from to mm-hmm. finance them right so steel lo- the locomotives uh um all that stuff is also is both financing like the the capital accumulation from those new industries is financing the city construction but it's also those technologies that help build the biggest right buildings that humanity had ever seen it up to that point and then after World War II, uh, that switches to the aerospace industry and computers. And uh, and so now all the money is in the defense industry. It's in rockets and stuff like that. And so you get what is um, called variously, you know, like lots of different things. But but I, I just give it the name, the city efficient to keep mm-hmm. everything uh, the same. And, uh, you know, and the city efficient is all about code. It's about, you know, the, doing land use codes, but also computer codes. You get the 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 big uh, highway system in the United States and Canada. Of course, the Marshall Plan post-World War II is also reforming Europe in the the in the model of the of the American kind of city. And in South America, to a large degree, you you know, you have some like American installed dictators that are, you know, building stuff like Brasilia, which is, uh, you know, like these like really high modern highway centric cities that are, are, are supposed to have like these very self-similar kinds of buildings that enact a uh, an efficiency so that the city starts acting more like a computer or like um, Le Cabousier, the, the famous um 
Swiss born architect said, you know, like a, a house should be a machine to live in. <laughs> and, and and that's sort of like the thought process for for all of these things is to make them very highly efficient. Did not understand the concept of homey, like that. No, and not, not in his lexicon. No, no not at all. And, and and Cabusier is a real really weird figure. I'm, I'm learning more about him now. I actually just checked out a book that jumped out of the book jumped off the bookshelf to me in my in my university library about Le Cabusier and and a, and the occult. Mm. These are like all the these, he was very fastidious and like making sure that he would be remembered as like a world changing genius. He's a very <laughs> self-centered guy. Um, every, every uh, like bad faith uh, stereotype. I of feel like architect. every industry has that figure, like yeah. super into the occult, super like wanting to be known through all of time as being like the, the prominent figure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the same way, like Steve Jobs thought that yeah. of himself and, and was also into the occult in the sense that like, you know, acid changed his life and he tried to like uh um cure his very curable cancer with like juice <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah, it's fun. yeah wow yeah so like you know stuff like that um and and so now the the i'm i i argue in the book that the city authentic is this like third movement which instead of steam or computer code is now uh attention and data and um and, and smartphones and all that fun stuff. And instead of building really big or complicated things, instead we're doing a lot of preservation and mimicry mm -hmm. and uh like reinterpretation uh, of stuff. And the value is built up in in the way that we harness attention and then how that value is, is then if it's translated into a physical structure the physical structures are actually fairly mundane and self-similar and uninspired even in the moment when uniqueness and regional flair is is, is like the thing that really creates value the 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 ability to produce that physically is not possible under our current kind of um, uh, political economy. Well, this is where we get, and and this has like become, it's basically a recurring Twitter fight of the four over one buildings where yes. they all like <laughs> basically look identical. And so do these like newly found homes that are all, you know, refurbished things, but like they, they just take, you know, three ideas and then restructure them over and over and over again. And we realize, you know, walking around these cities, they are no different, you know, I live in Fishers, Indiana, which is like one of the biggest suburbs of Indianapolis. And it's really no different than, you know, a suburb of Colorado or a suburb of Washington or a suburb of New York. Like these are just cookie cutter. It's the same in all of these locations, except for, I think what you get into in the book is like the authenticity part of it. And is like the way that I thought of it was just like their branding, you know, mm -hmm. like the architecture and like the city landscape is basically you could not tell the difference from one place to another except for and how they sell themselves and how they advertise themselves in some way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, a lot of anything that is distinct about a city gets rendered into a, a, a form of branding in what I call predictably unique ways. Right. So you take something that is just a little bit quirky, right. You know, like <laughs> yeah, just yeah. a little bit different, Right. Um, and you uh, shave down the, the rough edges to the point that it's just something that is uh, predictably unique. Right. It's just unique enough to to register as different, as regional, mm -hmm. 
but it still is the riff on the same sort of genre of thing. Like, oh gosh, do you put a, a, a cheeseburger slider on your Bloody Marys? Like, yeah. whoa, yeah. But but the, but it's you called have a, something... a milkshake with a donut on top. Like, oh my this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, this is crazy, right? <laughs> and and you know, and of course, like I I I always want to preface with the fact that like. Um, I, I just had like three Bloody Marys this week. <laughs> Bloody Marys are delicious, right? But um, that's not the point, right? Uh, I'm not going to argue that Bloody Marys aren't good. Right? <laughs> what, what I am going to argue is that they don't make your city unique. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, and that they are part, they're a good example of this process by which cities are trying really hard to affect a, a predictably unique feature set, which if you're thinking about like, well, why is it, why is everyone acting like this? Yeah. It's sort of like this cargo cult mentality of like trying to get the creative class is there sometimes called like, you know, just like highly mobile professionals that have a decent amount of disposable income. How do you get them to feel comfortable in your city and spend money? If, if they don't live there, then at least visit. And like, this is the, the idea in most um, economic development professionals brains is that like, we have to, grab these people because this is where value is is circulating the most and that's where we can grab it and sink it into our particular municipality or county well there's also i think it's fascinating because i i feel like this would not be you know city planning you don't often think of like the role of influencers but now having like you know in the recent year or two become kind of uh, a self-described influencer and and yep. realizing like the role that this uh, genre of creator plays into how cities are kind of formulated or how they advertise or like what they make the marquee of, of, of how they, you know, become desirable places. It has a lot to do with like how influencers can take pictures at local events and how influencers can easily post something identifying about the area and you have this this moment in the book where you talk about this hashtag that's used it was it called authentic life can you talk a little bit about oh yeah coming live authentic up, live authentic yeah, yeah. yeah. can you talk yeah. a little bit about that because that i was like i was enraptured at that part because i thought it was so funny <laughs> yeah yeah so this is um i i think I, I i think i start this in chapter three where i just like list three different things I've seen on Instagram and challenge the reader to figure <laughs> out like, I don't like if you were to give a hashtag, a hashtag that gives like the, the through line to all of these things, what would it be? And the, and the items are like a man sitting on the roadside being licked by a cow <laughs> uh, and like, a, a, you know, like a, a purple door. I don't know. There's like a bunch of like just completely disconnected objects yeah. and, and scenes. And, and they all have this hashtag live authentic. And, uh, and and to some degree, you know, so like I interviewed Taylor Lorenz for the book and she uh, corrected me that, um, that, you know, like hashtags aren't the most powerful thing in social media anymore, especially since TikTok, as I'm sure mm -hmm. you know, Nathan, right? That like now that things are so algorithmically controlled, the the even the hashtag is is a little clunky, right? Um, and what what really connects things across the Internet are these like proprietary algorithmically generated network effect connections that no one person even within the company can fully understand why things connect the way that they do right but um but these hashtags but people still use a lot of hashtags and they, they still 
especially in the kind of public sector, public-private partnership world of economic development, they're always a little behind on, yeah. on these sorts of trends. And so they're still relying a lot on hashtags as a way to draw attention and like kind of plop themselves into some sort of moving or or uh, highly used hashtag. And so live authentic is is something that I even heard from small business owners who would like have these little like tchotchke shops, you know, like where they, you know, like they sell a, like a $40 pencil case or, or like, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of like mug that has the city's area code on it, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, they, they, they would, they would say like, yeah, I like, I was encouraged by other people in this industry to post things uh, with the hashtag live authentic. Like these are, this is just like a thing. I, it's it's indescribable, really, of like what the hell exactly live authentic means. Yeah. Um. You know, I have one person saying like, I can't tell anyone how to live authentically. Like that's like, who the hell am I to do that? Right. But but it, everyone just kind of knows that like that that word, whether you want to give it a real definition or not, that's what everyone like looks for for like this amalgam of like you know, quirky, weird, but also understandable images or actions or events or experiences. Well, and I think like with, you talked about like the the hashtag being a little out of date and also this authentic kind of amalgamation of, it, it's kind of confusing, it's kind of outdated, it's kind of not really real in some sense. And then also I think with like throwing in kind of like, the influencer mentality surrounding all of these things. I think there's like a, and I don't know if you would agree with this. I mean, it's your book, but I think there's also like a level of where like the authentic is almost like sardonic <laughs> and like, and the sure. way that influencers are, you know, influencers are almost fake by nature. Like there is, there is a background degree to like realizing like, it's not like what, what is being advertised is not reality. And, and I think what it is, is, I think in some sense, like these towns that all, you know, brand themselves and advertise like these, it's like you copy and paste from everyone else. And then really what you have is just all of these cities continually being built in a unsustainable way that is like not actually great for progress in some, like it's, it's like a, it's a bandaid almost, yeah. if that makes sense. Like it's, it is authentic because it is like the actual vision of what they're trying to do, but the, the vision itself is wrong. You know, like that, that was kind of something I was reading into it. And I don't, I don't know if that was, you know, and what the meaning was intended for, but specifically with the influencer take, it was like, yeah, I just, I think it's like, there's a reversal to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah, while it is my book, this is your job. So feel free to correct, <laughs> correct me on, on this, but you know, I, I, from what, I, from who I spoke to, you know, there's, uh, and, and my own research kind of like on the, you know, the, the academic literature on influencers and like and advertising and tourism studies which is also its own field you know there, there's a couple things going on with authenticity which i spend an entire chapter just kind of going over the history and like what 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 authenticity has meant for a long time and where we get this modern definition of authenticity which actually dovetails nicely with the creation of the modern city mm -hmm. is this this uh obsession over what we call being authentic, right? And being an authentic person. Like it, it it becomes an obsession, you know, in the late 1800s, uh, when basically when the city beautiful starts kicking off in Paris, mm. uh, with uh 
Baron von Haussmann's like demolition of the medieval Paris and the rebuilding of the Paris that we know now with the grand boulevards and all that stuff. That's also when uh, you get these new technologies of plate glass windows and people get to like see each other doing things for the first time. And and lots of cities in this period are designed as a, as a kind of social media, like yeah. quite literally, right? Like the, me the medium of society is built within these buildings so that people can like look each look at each other in specific ways. Be like, oh, this person is wearing this thing and is walking in that direction. That means that they are this part of the society and stuff like that. Like, like you know, um, uh, doing you know the Vanity Fair of the late 1800s has <laughs> nothing on Vanderpump rules. Like it's like it's just so they're just reading each other so delicately and specifically. <laughs> it's, it's it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. You know, when it, when it comes to like, you know, like I think you use the word sardonic, I think that's right. The use of authenticity in social media and in and in brand marketing and influencers is um is, is it's like it's the medium, it's the paintbrush that yeah. that you use to then get attention. And there's lots of different ways that uh, authenticity could work. I just call them like basically like flavors of of authenticity. You can uh, be kind of like an objective, authentic perspective, which is kind of like authenticating things. Like, uh, is this really what I'm looking mm -hmm. at? Right? You know, um, uh, debunking. Right? <laughs> kind of authenticity. Right? Or you can do like a socially constructed authenticity, which is basically setting up expectations. Uh, through advertising mostly, and then meeting those expectations uh, through some sort of experience, right? So you tell everyone this is what it's like to visit Indianapolis or, or or something, and then they get there, and then they're like, "Oh, that's the thing I saw on the postcard <laughs> or or in the, this influencer's thing." Like I saw that, so yeah. I'm having an authentic experience of this place, right? And then there is a more existential kind of authenticity where people, through the experience that they're having it's not about the place anymore. It's about themselves. And it's mm -hmm. that like, they are now being who they authentically believe themselves to be in spite of like life's foibles or, or, you know, what things that got in the way. Right. So if you see yourself as like a urban fashionista that like always has the latest trends, but you're poor, right. Uh, going to a neighborhood or like a flea market where there's like super cheap, clothing and like jewelry and stuff like that and you're like picking out some good stuff like now you feel like you're actually living your real life the you are the real person that you always saw yourself as not as like you know the uh insurance salesman that you know you do as a day job or something like that yeah and then and then when it comes to uh influencers right you have to show people a little bit behind the curtain sometimes right you know like uh i woke up like this right <laughs> yeah, you know like yeah. things that are just like a little bit like not quite polished i'm not like show... having a great day today and it's just like yeah, the camera's yeah. just like two degrees off normal angle you know <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah yeah you, you turn off the circle light or something yep, yep. you're like oh man look i, I look like shit <laughs> you know it's like all of a sudden right and like that's a uh, and all of that that ring you know like just turning off a ring light is a way to convince your audience to some degree that, you know, like you are a real human and not like someone who's on Good Morning America, who I, no one can convince me those are real humans, right? Yeah. You know, like, the, like that's like that, that, that difference between celebrity and influencer comes down to that sort of what uh, Crystal Abaddon calls porous authenticity, where, right? These, you create these little holes to mm -hmm. peek through and, the, and what you see through the holes are, are is like a, a messy human, just like you.
I wanted to ask, um, this was in my formula, like my mental formulation of the book was like when the city authentic, like really came to be, I wanted to know kind of what you think is like the, the real starting point, if it, you know, is part of a political movement or if there's, you know, kind of one easy thing to like, you know, firmly say like, this is probably kind of how it got started. And I want to propose my own after reading your book is I think the city authentic started I would say in the late 90s, early 2000s, with really the invention of Froyo becoming a thing in every single town around America. And it was like the first really like unique culinary yeah. thing that every single town had. And they all got called something fun or unique. And I was like kind of reading the culmination of where the city authentic is today and as it exists like throughout the American culture. I was like, this was my city of 10,000 people. We had a Froyo place. We had nothing unique. It. At yeah. all for the first eight years of my life. And then in 2000, it was like, yeah, we got Froyo. We're like, we're a real place. So I, I actually don't think that your thesis is built off the idea of Froyo. But I am curious, when do you think uh, the City Authentic really like came to be as it's, you know, constituted today? No, I, I, I that that's a great example. I think, I think that's, I, I would agree with that. There, you know, things like this with like these like pretty amorphous, things like the city authentic they're gonna like pop up in different ways mm -hmm. in, in different registers and so it's it's really hard to put like a single date right there's like pre, there's like a prehistory of the city authentic that i would put way back in the 80s mm -hmm. when um exactly i put in the book um a little mention of the 1986 movie true stories made by uh david byrne the lead singer of the talking heads <laughs> yeah. um I to ever as I say in the book to everyone's chagrin around me I love this movie uh, even though it is like a so like something like some like sociology documentary musical or something like it's it's awful but um, I'll admit it but you know it's also got John Goodman in his first leading role it's a good I movie. did I did but, love that because you know you're making a point in the book I also believe it was just a you're just referencing something for you're like people you should check yeah. this out you're just yeah. recommending something you know on page 112 you're just like yeah. I need to drop this here I, I've got to say I've got to say my piece yeah and I do recommend that movie <laughs> um I, I I still do recommend it and you know in in that movie I mean just part of it is you know him noticing that like people I think he says something like you know people don't really seem to care if they buy something in a funky old building downtown or a brand new shopping center or mall out in the suburbs right people have seemed to stop caring about that and um and then later you know he poses the question to a character that's kind of like a like a big wig on the, in the city saying like you know how do you get people to choose to live where uh, in your town when they can live anywhere Right. They could yeah. do their job from anywhere. So why there? Right. And then and it's also at this time that you get movies like Beetlejuice, which, I, you know, again, as a very strange person, the thing that I associate with Beetlejuice is the fact that the original reason why the Dietzes move in the first place, which is, uh, you know, because like, you know, like they, they have like, they're just like kind of harried about New York City. But then they instantly like decide that this cute little Connecticut town has to become like a amusement park for like uh, people just like them who are artists and real estate agents right <laughs> like the, and, and the perfect and, uh the perfect community artists and yeah, real estate yeah, agents. yeah yeah and so it, it, it that's so like that's kind of like the prehistory of it but 
I would put, yeah, but the date about like where when Froyo starts coming around in like the early 2000s is also one when Starbucks gets really popular. Mm-hmm. And remember, and we, you know, we'll recall before, pretty much up until the pandemic, the thing about Starbucks was that they sold you, themselves as like a third place, right? Like they were yeah. saying that like we are a community center and look, we let you put like no, little, for sure. Uh, the- Things on up, billboards or, or, yeah. I grew up in a town of 10,000 people, you know, in Northeast Indiana, right by Amish country. And the one dependable thing we had was our Starbucks, you know, open yeah. every day. You know, it's where people hung out right after school. Like it was just really like one of the only communal places that existed at the time. Cause I mean, nothing else was either affordable to teenagers or open to teenagers. And Starbucks, I mean, they made the billions off of like creating themselves into that space. But they also crucially, the kind of space that they produced wasn't only communal. It felt urban. Mm. It felt like you were on, you're like at the central perk. You're getting, you're getting Seattle coffee. Like you're getting, you're like, it's a, it's a cool place. Yeah. But it's also, you know, like, you know, like if you're watching friends or something, right, they all met at a coffee house. And Mm -hmm. it's like, when you live in a big, cool city, you meet at coffee houses, <laughs> right? And and so, like, if you could get one... They didn't have enough coffee. room, and they're, like, 2,000-square-foot yeah. apartment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that didn't make any sense. I, I actually do believe there is a in-universe canon reason why Monica and Rachel live in a big in such a big apartment. It's And it's rent-controlled, so <laughs> Friends is also, pro, like, a pro-rent-control uh, text, uh, which is important to know. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the... Um, but yeah, like like it, so, all of those, all those experience people would might have experienced those things directly. Froyo, Starbucks, but also behind the scenes is the um, the rise of this book by a man named with the improbable name of Richard Florida, named the rise of the creative class. Right. Mm-hmm. This and this is uh, this comes out first in two thousand two. This is a um, a University of Pittsburgh professor that essentially connects the dots on stuff that's kind of already happening and say and and says and just kind of says it out loud that the places that are doing the best doing really well have uh what he calls the three t's technology talent and tolerance mm-hmm. right and so like they have a a technology forward economy like they you know they, they have people who you know have email jobs in early 2000 which is you know yeah. really your unique local at the school time. system has an app yeah uh, or not even an app, but like a website, right? Like, <laughs> right. like yeah, yeah, like the, the, yeah, yeah, like your 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 high school has a website, and um, uh, and then uh, uh, talent, right? You have people with advanced degrees living around there, and tolerance that uh, specifically um around uh, LGBTQ issues that like these these places that have like a like a gay neighborhood also seem to have a pretty banging economy. And and of course, and he just kind of like renders this into like identity politics and like just some sort of amorphous thing about how like all of these people just like the valuable thing is in their brains and like you just have to make them happy and they'll stay there. (laughs) And then like that will make the economy happen because they just have a bunch of money and, and, you know, it doesn't he doesn't really go kind of past that. In fact, and then he has like something called like a gay index it, it, it's it's you know falls real flat um <laughs> today but you know in, t- in the 2000s like oh here's a book that's not ostensibly about gay people that says gay people are good and that was actually you know props to him for that yeah I guess, progressive you know, at uh, that point yeah in that in that in that time yeah so it, it, and basically that book fills a gap 
that every single mayor in North America was trying to fill, which is that like now that all of the smokestacks, all the factories, uh, you know, are like kind of permanently uh, offshored, you know, outside of the borders of the United States, we have nothing to compete on. There's no all the all the old playbooks don't work anymore. And so here's a new one. And and they're like, I don't know if it works or not. I don't know if this is a good idea, but it's the only thing we got. And so let's open that Froyo shop. Right. It's like that's <laughs> that's it. Right. Uh, um, and 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 there are some winners, you know, Austin, Texas, notably, is like something yeah. that, that works. But it's also worth noting that Austin is a capital city. It is a city that has a lot of state workers, even in a red state. Red states still have people who work in government. Right. And like, though, that's a very that that uh, capital cities have very different local economies. Well, than, and than doesn't others, I think so. size and you know population plays into it a little bit? Where yeah. like larger cities can actually, in some sense, be authentic in and of themselves because population and diversity allow for that. But Absolutely. you know, cities of a hundred thousand, they're a lot more copy and paste from the other city of a hundred thousand. You know, and yes. you you set the book in Troy, New York, which is in upstate New York. And I found this like a really fascinating setting. It's where you live. It, it, it's a really obviously like localized story of yours, but it just translates way beyond Troy. And and I think I'm curious, was there was there a point in either writing or researching this project where you I know you wrote this about this like genre of city, but where you thought about expanding kind of some of like the case study work of it to like beyond the borders of uh, this what is it? It's called the economic zone, the uh, capital yeah, the, region. Yeah, the capital region. Yeah, generally. And, and the and the uh, regional economic development council that kind of decides how the eight counties around uh, the capital city of Albany, which, you know, w- would include Troy across the Hudson River. Yeah. Um, so originally I wanted this book to go way beyond all of that and to just kind of sample across mostly the United States on this because I was convinced that this was a national definite and and most likely a global phenomenon to some degree. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you when you write a book like this, <laughs> they're like, OK, OK, pal, this is your first book. Yeah. Pump the brakes. Why don't you make a good argument about a specific place instead of a massive argument about everywhere? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but well, but yeah, no, it's if you it, followed it really, up with, yeah. you know, a further writing on this topic. Please feel free to uh, to come hang out with me in Indianapolis area because we've got Carmel, Indiana. Which, oh yeah, uh, which is the roundabout capital of America. Yes, and, and it's yes. known like across the country as just I being. Know. I, I met a your horrifying mayor. city. <laughs> I, 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 I yes, I met the mayor of Carmel, Indiana. Uh, so when I was an undergraduate, I, I went to the New College of Florida, which is now Ron DeSantis's. Um, little, little like pet cat, project, little pet project, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I was there, and you had to write a uh, a thesis, right? To graduate, you had to like write a, a big mm. project. Um, and mine was on the redevelopment of the state highway corridor that went through downtown, and they wanted to add roundabouts to several uh, they were to several intersections. They wanted to turn them into roundabouts, and uh, man, that's that is a, a moment in like the uh uh how traffic engineering becomes cultural just like real fast is you just get like people standing up saying like this is not europe 
this is America. There will be no roundabouts. Like yeah. we 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 meet our cars meet at Cartesian 90 degree angles. <laughs> they do not go in circles. That is for communists. Yeah, you know, it's like they just like say they just like say stuff like that. And so they had they went and the city went and got the mayor from Carmel, Indiana <laughs> to come down and be like, look, I'm from Indiana. And I love roundabouts. It didn't make me gay or a communist <laughs> or anything. Like they just like, just so like which is a shame. Like, yeah, I yeah, really right, wish yeah, it worked that yeah. way. Right. Yeah, I wish it worked that way. But it was, but it was like it was just like the weirdest conversation possible about like how roundabouts are okay for Republicans. Was like, mm. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. So that's how I know the Carmel, Indiana is. is yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. I also this is kind of a curiosity because. And maybe I'm just misremembering it, but I don't think you kind of approach this topic in the book. But I'm just curious if you have thoughts on it is, uh, you know, I live in I live in a place that is the essence of the city authentic and Carmel right next door is, you know, the early stages of, you know, trying to become its own thing and everything like that. But like, is it already dying? And I, I think the way that I the the way that I see this is like I perceive it through I think the social media of being in like Facebook groups for like my local town of like people just angry that the development is just ever expanding and it, it just seems like a lot of nonsense to people that like the the way like we rebranded the fourth of July into the spark festival to like set ourselves as like unique and some people are like just genuinely like <laughs> just hate this thing. And yeah. I think there's also a rise of you know, the city efficient created the car class in some way. I mean, it was, it's growing, but like it created the ever expanding, just everything is a drive through like notion to how the United States is. And I think like, especially on the left, we are reckoning with the fact that trains and public transportation just do not exist and were intentionally non-existent now. And so I mm -hmm. think people are just upset with what cities are becoming and, and kind of how in some way fake or how derivative they tend to be. So is like, do you view the city authentic as, you know, we're in this current place and maybe this is the end of history <laughs> for city development. And maybe this is just what we're stuck with, or is this, are we in maybe a transitional phase, but it depends largely on like wildly big, you know, political movements in the, in the country. Yeah, that's a great question. So I feel like every, pretty much every moment of, big change in cities feels like the last one mm. you know you'll always find people being like okay well now cities suck forever now <laughs> yeah, right yeah. um uh uh like um lewis mumford a uh, philosopher of technology and kind of like a long time commenter on cities called like the era of good feelings the era of bad taste mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like you know like the the a, a period where there was that overlaps with um the city beautiful movement right and because it's at that point that you're getting these like new rich folks that want to build a townhouse that looks like a castle or something <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and or you know has like like an arabesque spire on it and uh he's like come on like that's the gaudiest thing i've ever seen and then <laughs> whereas today you know like you look at it and you're like wow that's has so much character and <laughs> why don't we build what you think right <laughs> yeah why don't we build anything with that level of build quality anymore and stuff like that right and so like that's so we, we always have to take this kind of stuff with a grain of salt that like it always it we always look like we have the worst city in history yeah that being said it's also possible that it's true every time and they just keep getting worse <laughs> 
right? Like that's that's the other possibility that you know, like minus, of course, like you know, the invention of uh, you know modern sewer systems and clean water, which is undoubtedly a good thing, right? Um, There's there's a bunch of stuff that might be going very badly and just continues to get worse. Like we we can't um, discount that. Now, uh, are are we living at kind of like the 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 end of history of like the culture of cities? Like this is something that I say in in the book is that like there's like this paradox at the center of the city authentic, which is crucial to gentrification in general, right? Which is that it eats its own. Is that mm-hmm. is that at some point, if you succeed in this project and you get all of the web designers and lawyers and uh, investment bankers to to flock to your city because your farmers market was that good and your <laughs> you become uh, Portland and Austin you yes, you like right. you, you really like, do it yeah you, when you really really do it you make it happen everything gets turned into like a Bank of America and a Whole Foods right mm-hmm. and and no one and no one that is actually interesting that makes and experiments in culture can live there mm-hmm. and instead you get all the consumers of culture that just want to like look around and be like, where's the good stuff? And they, and they'll pay for it, but no one that actually makes it can live in proximity to those paying people. And so you end up with a lot of like ax throwing bars that, and like, you know, places that, <laughs> that just like sell expensive cocktails and yeah, like yeah. a beer that's named after a, a fictional animal or something, you know, just like weird <laughs> shit. That's, that's the end game of the city authentic and gentrification in general is that it, it pushes out all of these funky, actually cool, authentic, funky things uh, and replaces them with, uh, you know, your your quirky waffle and and fried chicken joint. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah. Something I've seen recently, and this is just because of, you know, the book influencing space that I'm in and, and I'm just being like. I mean, for a, you know, a city of Indianapolis, I have a large following. So, like, I get reached out to right. by places to, you know, come visit and take a picture and post on my story and tag and stuff like that, which is a really weird thing. But something I, I was recently reached out to is about the Edgar Allan Poe Speakeasy Company. And it's a company that is building bars around the country for right. right. Poe po genre speakeasies. Which is what? just like, yeah, right. So it's like, this is, I, th- to me, this is like Rainforest Cafe, but for like non-children. Like it's it's yes. really just, yeah. it's a weird expansion. And I, <laughs> this is kind of a, a weird question. Uh, and maybe you've talked to influencers and asked all the questions that you need. But as a influencer in one of these, you know, authentic cities, you know, quote yeah. unquote, is there anything you're curious about, like kind of my interactions, like with how, you know, how being in these places as an influencer is? Because, yeah, I mean, I, I in a weird place and I don't want to like make myself sound more important than I am. But like the influencers are like an integral part into the like the very notion of this idea. And they absolutely are. Yeah. I'm curious what <laughs> like if you have a question for me or just a thing I should watch oh, out wow. for or anything like that. <laughs> and I'm sorry, it puts yeah. you on the spot. I just think it's a. Weird happenstance that in probably most of the, uh, you know, the interviews that you've been doing for your book, I don't know that many of them have been with, you know, just a 
self-identifying influencer. No, no, I know. I went, I went for like the meta level of like people who look at influencers. And I talk, I talked to them because I was kind of covering a lot of different stuff and like, but I, I really should have, I wish I had more time. I, I could have like interviewed actual influencers, but and I actually know that's not true. I do inter interview one influencer sort of that, that runs a, an Instagram account that makes like what I call like place-based memes, like, like jokes oh, about yeah, living yeah. the starter in the pack area. for you know albany or right. you know those yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah. things yeah but um oh man i have like a million questions <laughs> i want to ask you uh but like and, and and that is is that's great that you call it like rainforest cafe for adults <laughs> yeah i think that that not not to say that rainforest cafe isn't also for adults but oh, yeah, that love no. the rainforest actually but, i think it's but, the yeah, opposite it's, i think it's so yeah. for adults that adults hate it you yeah. know like it's it's so good that they're That's like i yeah. i cannot i cannot yeah. come here without my children i will right. be embarrassed <laughs> yes yeah yeah uh i just can't get enough of the animatronic gorilla <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> it's like a thunderstorm <laughs> uh and they have a great caesar salad but uh yeah the um Oh, man. I mean, like, so one thing that I had heard was that, you know, because cities is now influencers are just basically like a normal part of the marketing budget for anything. Yeah. Right. That's just like it's not it's not weird to utilize the services of a influencer, usually like kind of like off the shelf through some sort of talent agency. They'll just like kind of grab someone and mm -hmm. uh, and say, you know, like, OK, you, your demographic, like your audience skews in the following demographics. <laughs> this is the people that we want to show yeah. up here to go to the the artisanal flea market. Uh, so go do your thing. Right. Um, I guess I what's always interesting and difficult to research is like the like the not like the negative case. Right. Like where are influencers saying no thanks to like some sort of offer? Like, that's definitely something I'm always interested in is who, mm. like, do you say no to the Edgar Allan Poe themed <laughs> chain of speakeasies? Yeah. Uh, right. You know, like, like I'm always curious about that. But like, if you find yourself in the position of influencing for the chain of Edgar Allan Poe themed speakeasies, right? Like one thing that I would, I, I would just be interested in like, I guess, like what they direct you to, like what they think is important for you to pay attention to mm -hmm. is is always seems like important data. I would also want to know like what kinds of buildings they want to draw your attention to. And mm -hmm. if it is like, you know, like an old Kmart, right, like, uh, you know, or something like that, you know, where is nostalgia playing a, a role here? Right. And I guess I would also because if it is like a burnt out Kmart, right? Like these are places that at the time that they were being built were um, derided as non-places. These are not important. These will be mm -hmm. forgotten instantly. But that's not true, right? Because uh, now, you know, with the malls pretty good, well and dying, yeah, there there now comes a nostalgia for the Well, they become the like the, the liminal space that is always... Yeah. You know, there's always a yeah. trending tweet of, you know, a dead right. mall or a Kmart yeah. or a just a large parking lot with weeds growing out of it. Right. Yeah. And and so, like, I, I would just kind of generally be interested in, you know, wh where where they think the authenticity is come is bubbling up from. Like, is it is it from like the liminal space genre or is it from the reindustrial, you know, like the post-industrial genre? Right. You know, stuff like that. And yeah. I guess 
Yeah. And I guess like finally, I, you know, like the, it's interesting that they would come to like someone it, with your lane of like book talk kind of influencing, like, where does that, why is that important for an Edgar Allan Poe themed speakeasy? <laughs> I mean, like, sure, he wrote books, but like, yeah. I feel like you could also go to just like a, someone that's just like vaguely goth or something. I, I don't know. Right? All, There's lots of, it's lots all of Venn diagrams. The vibes. There. I think that's yeah. like essentially what the city authentic is or or like how I interact with the system is like they, they want the vibe, you know, if they find me and they find that I'm living in an area and I have, you know, a hundred thousand followers, they know I've got the chill reader vibes. And so they mm -hmm. want to use that in order to drive Oh yeah, we've got chill vibes. But if they have another like, you know, they've got a punk rock influencer, they're gonna like, oh, you know, you gotta check check out this, you know, Saturday night rave downtown thing that we do. And it's like, so it's always trying to match, I think, like an essence more than even like an event itself. It's like, no, we we have that. We always have that. And I think they like they pull themselves thin because they they don't. You know, it's mm -hmm. like they might have this one event you know, a really quiet, calm, like, um, we've got a reading hour at a coffee shop and they would like me to display that. And it's like, okay, but like, are your coffee shops like good to hang out in and, and like bring a book? It's like, no, it's because there's Bible studies in there every other hour of the week. <laughs> like, it's just like a weird, you know, this is a Midwestern thing, but it's like, sure. they're trying to, you know, advertise, I think just a vibe. Like they're, they're, they're wanting to show like, you can be this, this kind of person here as well. You know, I, yeah. I mean, that's my interaction with the the whole system. That that sounds right. We, we do live in a vibe-based economy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Vibe, right. Yeah. Vibes driving the economy. And certainly yeah. not, you know, interest rates driving city expansion endlessly or anything like that. It's it's, no. it's vibes. Vibes, yeah. vibes, vibes. Vibes, 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 vibes. My final question is, uh, do you have any book recommendations for us? I, I know this could be uh, books that you've, you know, been reading recently or books that you you just really love or books that were like great in your research projects. I'd love to know kind of what you'd recommend for this audience. Yeah, I have, I have a ton. Um, uh, you just, just, just stop me when we run out. <laughs> so like, what, what the, the big highlight one is one that I still, I, I, I was taught it in my urban sociology class in undergrad and I still teach it in my, in one of my courses today. So it's as old as I am, but it, it still works for all the, bad reasons, right? Like we never <laughs> solved any of these problems. And so the book is still relevant. It's called Urban Fortunes okay. by um, uh, the authors are Logan and Mollish. Those are their last names. And Urban Fortunes uh, looks at the political economy of uh, North American cities and finds that, you know, uh, th that the elites in any given region will disagree on a bunch of stuff, but they'll agree on one thing almost every time. And that is that growth is good, right? Mm -hmm. Growing everything about the city, the population, the size of the buildings, all of it, the, 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 you know, the, how much money is circulating, all that has to grow. And that uh, demand for growth determines everything else about why a city acts the way that it does. And, um, and it's just like, it, it really just feels like you're getting under the hood of how cities work because there's a ton of things about like the way your city works. They're like, why'd they do that? Why? That doesn't make any sense. But it, once you kind of look at the, at the underlying political economy, you, it all, it all starts yeah. clicking into place and making sense. Uh, another book that I will um, shout out is um, Sharon Zukin, uh, uh, Naked City. 
This is oh, I saw this the, one recently. Yeah, this is the precursor to my book, to be honest. Like I, I, I quote this book so much in my book that I had to pay rights. <laughs> Uh, because I recreated so much of this this book, you know, just to be safe. I don't think I had to, but I wanted to be safe. But, and, and it's just, and um, Doctor Zukin is like such a like a a smart person, easy to read. Even though it's a complex idea, she has a ton of books. Uh, Loft Living is another really good one, and her latest one is called um, The Innovation Complex. Uh, which is about like all the weird sort of scammy boot camp, like coding boot camp stuff, and like how that drives a lot of economic development these days. That's really important. Uh, another one that I would say is um, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air by Marshall Berman. This is a, an oldie, but a goodie. It's just, it's one, th that's the book that taught me that it was cool to be weird. Or <laughs> <laughs> Let me be weird, right? But no, he he um, he, he, he treats Marx as a, as a literary figure and puts the, him in place with, Baudelaire and lots of other urban uh, like like people who are speaking about the urban condition in literature mm. and he kind of moves them together and then uses all of that to explain modernity and like what why everyone is so anxious all the time and he's he's writing this in like the early 80s I think 70s right but he's still like why does everyone like feel so like the vibes are bad and like in today's parlance right and like and why doesn't why isn't anyone ever happy that something is being built <laughs> right because this is that's supposed to be like a sign of progress uh, but no one's happy when they, when they see like construction equipment like and and like that that should say something deep about like how we view the future mm -hmm. right and so it's like really really uh excellent book let me see if i can think of one more try to think of something that's kind of like uh not, I'm curious not, if you'd recommend this. We we exchanged a couple messages about it a while back because I picked the geography of nowhere. Uh, who's the author on that one? Uh, James Howard Kunstler. James Howard Kunstler. I chose it for my uh, my book club uh, a while back, a couple months ago, and it's what I found to be a really excellent book written by a total crank and uh, just uh, all around. Yeah really horrible guy now. Um, I yep. don't know if he's always been or if this is an, a recent development. I am curious if you would, you know, knowing the things that we do know about him and, and you know, how he's kind of developed. Uh, is that one that you would recommend? I, this is more your area. It's, it's something yeah. I just, you know, I heard I about the book. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I, I would give it a qualified recommendation. <laughs> like, it, like it's it, for some of the reasons that you described. Um, he yeah, he he's he, he's a guy that like starts talking a lot about uh, Western civilization like mm -hmm. a lot now, but uh, you know cranks are are valid. Mm. <laughs> like they they, yeah. they, 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 they sometimes have of, they have the pulse. Good, you know they, yeah, they, they, yeah. And he had like one really good idea, which was like saying like, "Hey, no one likes what everything looks like now, right?" Yeah. Like, and and and, it, and the geography of nowhere is a, is a great title. It's a, it, it describes in you know an economy of words exactly what everything feels like now it's just like why is everything feel like an airport and why do airports <laughs> feel like malls you know right like the, like this it's um I, I i do really like it i do think he's a little um in grad school i learned the phrase technological determinist right where you, you know like he, he thinks that the technology kind of determines social conditions mm. I, I i think he's kind of guilty of that sometimes 
and, and I think there's something a little bit more complicated going on about global economies and like, like the fact that when you build something today, you don't have a bunch of skilled masons and artisans building the thing. You have an engineer that oversees a bunch of, uh, to some degree, de-skilled labor in slapping something together. And that isn't about like people not caring as much about culture or cost effective it's just cost yeah 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 yeah. and 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 like the way that we store value is no longer in the build quality of the building it's in some like derivative future market right and so like (laughs) it's like that's that that's the real reason why stuff is like that so like that's the kind of like the qualified recommendation i'd give and i guess like the last book that i would um recommend is jody dean's comrade okay um that that book i think gives um I think like a lot of like uh, baby leftists or people who are just sort of started to like get their bearings on what their politics are. You'll either completely agree or completely disagree with this book. And that's <laughs> in, in both conditions are very helpful. Mm. I agreed with it. But I think if you have like you should just and I say like you you either take or leave the entire argument of this book, mostly because she's just like so, you know, like vociferous in it right and she's just like this is there are things like correct opinions right and you're just like and you, you either believe that or you don't right <laughs> that, and yeah. i have to read this one now because that has been yeah. a thing i have been trying to say in every little social engagement since i was like 15 you know yeah. this is it's always been a thing i've tried to hammer in but yeah. david thank you so much for coming on the podcast everyone you need to check out the city authentic how the attention economy builds urban America. Thank you so much. And where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me uh, on uh, x.com. <laughs> x.com. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find me on the porn website at <laughs> DA underscore banks. Uh, I'm also on blue sky as David a banks dot online, which is also my website. Uh, so you can, you can find me on there. And I'm, uh, I'm on Instagram. You'll just, you'll find me through that, that too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. This has been another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. And this podcast is edited and produced by Tone Support. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next week. 